Well, as you're taking your seats there, go ahead and grab your Bibles and open them up to the book of 2 Timothy. Uh, It's it's fitting that it's Father's Day today. I've entitled this message, The Heart of a Father. But before we get there, I want to just share with you a little bit of where we're going this summer. We're starting this this Sunday, today, a new series in the book of 2 Timothy. And um, we've just finished the book of Acts, and we're branching out into the, the final, really what is the final chapter in the life of the Apostle Paul. And the theme throughout the book is the theme of endurance or perseverance. And so to capture that idea, we've entitled this final series, Finishing Strong. That really is the gist of what Paul, through the power of the Holy Spirit, is communicating. His goal is to make sure that those who are established in the faith are running the race of faith and are finishing the race of faith strong, running through the line, as they say in track and field, right? leaning forward, running with all of our might and all of our speed through the line. Easier said than done. There are so many who start the Christian race well, but finish so poorly. And it is the heart of a father. I want to kind of relate this a little bit to what we saw in our parent-child dedication. We talked already about this, so allow me to bridge this gap. It's the heart of every father, it should be, of every spiritual father, of every Christian father, that their child, above all things, above the success of this world, above making a name for themselves in this world, above having a a great career that's going to provide financial stability and resources and security in this life, above everything this world has to offer, the heart of a father, the heart of a man who loves God, is that his child, first and foremost, knows and loves Jesus Christ. Whatever else they may have in this world, that's fine. Just give them Jesus. Isn't it true? We want our children to have faith in Christ Jesus. And once we've helped them establish by the grace of God a foundation of faith in their life in Christ Jesus, we want our children to hold the faith, don't we? We want to equip them with the faith And then we want to encourage them to run hard for Jesus Christ and to not give in, to not falter. And when you do falter and you do fall, because we all do along this journey, to get right back up and to finish strong. As we've seen this morning, it's a great privilege and stewardship to be used by God to help produce and encourage the faith of a child. It's important to note, by the way, that as we look at this text, we're going to see here, and we're going to read it in just a second, that Paul really takes this concept of fatherhood and child and the idea of a heritage in the Lord, and he wants to establish and encourage the faith of his young protege, Timothy. Let's read the text together. And then let's go through it verse by verse. It says this in verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. Now, it's important to note that Paul doesn't have, as far as we know, any biological children. 
But one thing we do know is that Paul, he constantly refers to this throughout his writings, has many spiritual children. Paul has played the spiritual father to many, many young men. None have benefited from his spiritual patronage more than Timothy. Timothy has become this dear child, this dear sweet son of Paul's. There is nobody I believe Paul loves more who is dearer to Paul's heart than Timothy. But I think it's helpful just to make mention of this that Paul doesn't have his own biological children. And so this really demonstrates, yes, the heart of every father for your children, I trust this morning. I hope that's a practical application for you. But it really demonstrates the heart of a discipler, of anybody who looks around them and sees that there are young men and women who they can be a father or a mother or a sister or a brother to. That in the family of God, God has seen fit to grace us with many sons and daughters, many fathers and mothers, many sisters and brothers. So in both the physical and spiritual sense, this book and this passage this morning really is for all of us who are seeking to fulfill the great commission given by Jesus Christ to go into all the world and make disciples. And I want you to see that Paul is intent in this very first section, really the introduction to this book, on encouraging the faith of Timothy. He has worked hard throughout his life to help establish the faith of Timothy. He has grounded him. He has rooted him in the faith. He has built him up and equipped him. He has even deployed him into ministry. But now there's a time in Timothy's life where everything seems like it's unraveling. And he is in desperate need of being encouraged. And I just wonder this morning if maybe you're at a place where you need to be encouraged in your faith. You need to be told, keep going, keep pressing on, don't throw the towel in. Maybe God would speak very clearly to you. You see, encouraging faith is essential in the Christian life because the journey of faith is hard. It requires perseverance, and as I said before, there are so many who start well and don't finish strong. There are so many, I believe even now, maybe even here, who are weak and beaten down. They're tired in this race. And encouragement is the gift that God, by His Spirit, through His Word, gives to faithful followers of Christ. Encouragement is the gift that we give to one another in the body of Christ. And it is a precious gift. This is who we are called to be in the family of God. Paul and Timothy, as I mentioned, are both actually in troubling circumstances. As I said, we finished the book of Acts, and we saw that Paul had been in prison for two years. Really, he was on house arrest and, and at the very end of the book of Acts, and it really was a sense of freedom given to him. He's, he's not restricted. He's able to come and go in many senses, to have people into his home, and ministry seems to still be going on. And at the end of his time there in in that Roman imprisonment, Paul is actually released. His trial doesn't go through. He has a few more fruitful years of ministry, but the context of 2 Timothy is this. It's been five or six years since Paul's release from Acts chapter 28. During this time, a lot has unfolded historically in AD chapter, or excuse me, AD 64, the year AD 64, Nero, the great emperor of the Roman world, has set fire to Rome and he burned it up in six days, trying to weasel his way out of responsibility. He lays blame upon a group of individuals known as Christians. 
And so at this time, persecution has radically increased. The opposition is immensely strong. Paul has been rearrested, and he's this time been thrown in actual prison. This is no house arrest. He is down at the bottom of a deep, dark, dirty dungeon. And before, in Paul's first imprisonment, he saw that there was light at the end of the tunnel. He he really believed that he was going to be released as he was. But now as he sits in the deep, dark dungeon of this imprisonment, chained with only a little bit of light probably, smelly, disgusting, filthy circumstances, he actually knows that the end of his life is imminent. It is very near. There's not a shadow of doubt in his mind. Timothy is in Ephesus where Paul had sent him to pastor the church there. But at this point in his life and ministry, he's ready to throw the towel in. Things have become increasingly more difficult. He is absolutely disheartened and discouraged. From where do these two men draw encouragement? How is it that Paul can look towards the end of his life and he can say, I am going to finish strong no matter what circumstances I am facing? How is it that Timothy, still a relatively young man, can look towards the remainder of his life and the remainder of his journey of faith and say, I'm going to press on. I'm going to make it through this opposition. I am not going to throw the towel in. I will not quit. Well, here's how Paul writes this letter. And he writes to encourage the faith of his child in the faith, Timothy, showing the heart of a father who longs to see his child continue to walk faithfully before the Lord. And what a gift this is. What a gift this letter is to the church. What a gift the gift of encouragement is to the church. And we can give these gifts of encouragement as well. We can give them to our biological children. We can give them to our spiritual children. We can give them to one another as fathers and mothers and sisters and brothers in the faith. And so as we look at God's word together, let me first encourage you that as we strive to encourage one another, let's do this. Let's give the gift first of a gospel surrendered life. There is nothing more foundational that we can give to those around us than a gospel-surrendered life, both within ourselves and to them, to remind them of what it looks like to have a gospel-surrendered life. Verses 1 and 2 really is the introduction, the blessing, the, the blessing that Paul gives to Timothy He starts by introducing himself, and then he introduces the the recipient, Timothy. Paul, he says, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Just so you know, Paul's introduction here is deeply personal. This letter to Timothy is unlike any other letter Paul has written. It is so intimate. It is so affectionate. It is so filled with personal love. Really, in this somewhat customary greeting, Paul begins by encouraging Timothy with what is of first importance, both to himself and should be to Timothy, the gospel of Jesus Christ and all of the blessings that are afforded to those who know and love Jesus Christ. To all who have surrendered to Jesus Christ as Lord, there are graces upon graces lavished upon us. Paul says that he comes to Timothy as an apostle of Christ Jesus. Some people think that Paul simply here is reminding Timothy of his own authority as an apostle, as a delegate from God, as an ambassador sent by God with special authority. 
Timothy knows this already. It's no surprise to hear from his great mentor in the faith, Paul. And I would suggest to you this morning that this is not about his authority, but it is simply authenticating his own circumstances to Timothy. I mean, you have to think, Timothy is looking at his beloved mentor and his father in the faith, and he's seeing him in this deep, dark dungeon. He understands that Paul is likely never getting out, that he's likely, as history records, going to lose his head. And he's worried. He's, he's worried for himself and his own circumstances, and he's worried for Paul and what he's going through, and he's filled right now with such fear and trepidation. But Paul comes along and says, hey, listen, I am an apostle of Christ Jesus. It's important that Paul demonstrates this even as he faces impending death. He's saying, Timothy, my imprisonment and my eventual death are no accident. They are a part of my calling. They are a part of my ambassadorship. Timothy, this is what I signed up for as a servant of Christ Jesus. Timothy, don't let this surprise you when hardships and trials come my way. This has been my life, remember? Remember the book of Acts? He says, Timothy, this is a part of my ambassadorship. You'll know this. I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, Paul says. In other words, this is God's doing, Timothy. Take heart, brother. Be encouraged. He's not running. Do you see this from Paul? He's not running from this, for he has been called to this. Apostleship is directly from God and everything that comes with it, including prison and death. Paul has surrendered his life to the gospel, and he gladly embraces everything it entails. Listen, church, listen. To flee the consequences of following Christ is essentially to flee Christ. So while we sing that song, right? The cross before me, the world behind me, I've decided to follow Jesus. That statement of declaration, that restatement of recommitment to Christ, it's so important that we see how necessary this is because time and time again, what we experience in life is that when the going gets tough, we get going. Things get hard. Following Jesus is challenging. How many people have I watched with my own eyes, right, suffering for the cause of Christ or being called to follow Christ with greater, greater commitment and devotion, and then it becomes too hard because the pull of the world is so enticing, and what I have to give up to do this is feel so costly in the moment. And so many people, they abandon, they abandon the call to follow Jesus faithfully, And you and I are faced daily sometimes, daily with the temptation to turn our back on Jesus, to turn towards the things of the world, to run headlong towards sin. But to flee the consequences of following Jesus, the hard work of following Jesus is to, in some sense, flee Christ Jesus. Paul says this is what we are called to. And he wants to encourage him. He says that, Notice this, it is according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. This would be particularly powerful in light of Paul's impending death. He's looking death in the eyes at this very moment, and he says, Timothy, don't worry about my death. I have been given life. Life in the present and future sense, what is promised in Christ Jesus is true life. And instead, he teaches Timothy by example and by way of instruction that true life is a life completely surrendered to Jesus Christ. The source of all genuine spiritual life is Christ Jesus, and that life can only be experienced through a relationship with him. Even in the face of death, Paul is saying, I have life, and by the way, 
greater life awaits. What encouragement to Paul's own heart as he pens these words and reminds himself of what he's been given in the gospel of Jesus Christ. What encouragement to Timothy, as you'll notice, he turns now to Timothy in verse two, and he says to Timothy, my beloved child, you can translate that, my dear son, it is a term of endearment and affection. This is not, by the way, a letter like 1 Timothy. If you go back and you kind of do a parallel with the introductions, there are some similarities, but there are some really, really sweet differences. That letter was primarily for the church, for the instruction of of the life of the church. And as much as this letter is for the church as well, it is very personalized to Timothy in his particular circumstances in ministry. This book is primarily for the encouragement and edification of this young man. I can't tell you how much this must mean to Timothy. I have a book on my shelf. Um, It's called Dear Timothy. And uh, the, the letter, the book, excuse me, is a compilation of letters that are very similar to this book. The the concept was taken from this book. Older, godly men of the faith writing as if they're writing to a young son in the faith. And each chapter has a particular emphasis. And and I can't tell you how invaluable that book has been to me just even in my few short years of ministry to go back to it time and time again and to hear the encouragement from someone who is further down the road, someone who has endured uh, all kinds of opposition and hardships and trials that I have yet to experience. The reminders of what it means to follow Christ and how it can go if you truly commit yourself and surrender all to him. He says, beloved, again, such a sweet emotional term. It's from the depth of Paul's heart. Paul longs for Timothy to experience these gospel truths that he's now going to unleash upon him. He says, Timothy, let me remind you, this is what this is, let me remind you of what you've been given in the gospel. Listen to these next few words, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Grace is unmerited favor of God to sinners through Jesus. Both, by the way, initial grace by which we are saved from the penalty and then ongoing daily grace from the freedom and the power of sin. Mercy is the compassion of God toward those who suffer, particularly suffering because of sin. Peace is life now fulfilled and reoriented in Christ. It is a wholeness and completeness of life as it should be. The disorder caused by sin, especially internally and subjectively, is now reordered and anchored and structured by the peace provided by God. It is objective peace whereby we are made right with God, and it is subjective peace whereby we experience true inner calm and rest for our souls. Look, if you want to motivate and encourage others in the faith, just simply lay out the foundation of faith again. Bring them right back to the gospel and what it means to have a life that is surrendered to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Then take them back to it. You say, well, then what? Then take them back to it again and again and again. Re-anchor your own heart in the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remember that it is grace upon grace that has been lavished upon you. Remember that God gives mercy to those in, in their times of need. Remember that God gives peace and rest for the souls of all those who come to him. Find that encouragement for your soul this morning. Secondly, encourage with a God-serving life. It's sweet that Paul can instruct Timothy, and 
Timothy is probably beginning to have flashbacks to the life of Paul. He's seen this lived out so faithfully before. There's something so sweet about an example being given of a life that is devoted to serving God. It's one thing to hear the instructions time and time again, isn't it? Don't you feel like this too? Um, A parent, one of the greatest things you can give to your kids is not just the verbal instruction, it's the instruction of your life well lived in front of them. Paul now moves into an expression of thanksgiving. His heart is now bursting with thanksgiving to God and he begins to pour out his heart to Timothy and he begins to pray to give him a sense of how he prays for Timothy. Verse three says this, I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience. Paul's life has been characterized by continual gratitude to God. I want you to just note that first of all. One of the greatest examples you can give to anybody in the Christian life is a heart that is so filled with thankfulness and gratitude. This is a natural byproduct, by the way, of reflecting upon the gospel, isn't it? It is so hard for you to be so in tune with the gospel, to be meditating deeply upon the gospel, uh, upon what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross, dying for your sins, raising so that you could have life. It's hard to stay there and not have your heart so stirred with gratitude to God, isn't it? In fact, I would argue you need to stay there until your heart is filled with gratitude to God. Don't move from that place of contemplation and meditation, personally thinking about how Jesus died in your place until your heart is so stirred with gratitude that your heart erupts with praise. This is the foundation, by the way, not only for prayer, it ought to be the foundation of a life lived serving God. Flowing directly of the knowledge of the gospel, a heart of thankfulness, to God drives our life to live, not for ourselves, but to him who died to set us free. So what's Paul so thankful for? Well, he's thankful for sure for the gospel, but when he begins to think of Timothy as he does here, he's simply thankful for everything. (laughs) He, He looks at Timothy and his heart is just so thankful for Timothy, for all that he means to him, for all that they've gone through together, for all that Timothy is doing to advance the cause of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I want to encourage you that we need to have this attitude of being thankful for everything. This is throughout the word of God as well. It's been said like this, an attitude of gratitude sets the altitude for life. An attitude of gratitude sets the altitude for life. If you want to live at a good place, at a good altitude in the Lord, then you need to have a heart so filled with gratitude. Timothy here, what a blessing he's been to Paul. And this is where it begins. As fathers, let me speak to you fathers. You set the example in the tone of this in your home. You set the example of what it means to have a, a God-serving life. A life that's lived not for yourself, not for your own advancement, the, gl- the glory of your name, but for the advancement of Jesus Christ and the glory of his name. You set the tone for what it means to have a life lived into service to others after you love God and love others, living to better your family, to serve them, not for them to serve you. It's interesting here, the verb that Paul chooses for serving, that little word that he chooses, it's not the normal word for service that you might expect. He chose a word that points to performing religious service and acts of worship. It's a word that links back to the Old Testament and it envisions the the priestly responsibilities in the temple of worshiping God, those acts of sacrifice to the Lord as acts of worship. 
Really, this kind of links us to this concept found in Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2. Right? I, Therefore, I urge you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present yourselves as a living sacrifice, for this is your spiritual act of worship. That's exactly what Paul is saying here to Timothy. Paul looks at the whole of his life as a continual opportunity to worship God. Everything he is, all of him, unreservedly given over to the worship of God, to the service of God. All that he does is for God and his glory. Listen, church, true worship is not a matter of doing, but of being. So often we link it specifically to things we do. We sing songs, that's my worship. I give money, that's my worship. But God calls us not simply to do the things that are worshipful, we only do them because that is who we are. We are worshipers of God. We learn to think through this grid that this is an opportunity. How can I do this for God's glory? Is this most pleasing to the Lord? This decision that I need to make, how will will it best honor Christ above all things? This is what it looks like to be a person of worship. Everything begins to be filtered. And by the way, this doesn't happen just naturally, even as a Christian. It's something we have to constantly, especially initially, begin to think about as our hearts are tuned to the word of God. No longer conformed to this world, as Paul would say, but transformed by the renewing of our minds that we may discern what is good, holy, acceptable, pleasing to him. This all is impossible, this life of serving, impossible without a heart that is filled with gratitude It's who Paul is. He's a man filled with gratitude. Let me ask you this morning, husbands, wives, those of you who don't have a spouse, children, grandparents, do you have a heart filled with gratitude? Do you have a heart filled with gratitude for who God is and what he has done for you? Paul says he served with a clear conscience. You notice this? The conscience is a gift from God but it is distorted through sin. It can be weak through immaturity. It can be wounded through wrong. It can be defiled by sin and seared to the point of insensitivity by repeated acts of rebellion against God. It is clear when it is free from dirt, filth, and that which would stain it. Paul, by the way, is not saying that he's sinless in case any of you have the wrong impression about Paul and the way he thought of himself. Having a clear conscience does not mean you view yourself as sinless. But Paul's conscience was clear because he had walked with humility, quickly confessing and turning from sin that came to his attention. Paul refused to knowingly entertain sin. He sought to live upright and pure before all people. By the way, a clear conscience frees the way for peace to fill our hearts and confidence to empower our service. It's a helpful guide only as it is conformed to the word of God. I want you to think about it like this in terms of your ministry and your relationships, your family dynamics. There is a direct correlation between the condition of my conscience and the health of my ministry. Think about that for a second. There's a direct correlation between the health of my conscience the condition of my conscience, excuse me, and the health of my ministry, my ministry to my spouse, to my children, to my friends, to my church, to my coworkers, to my unbelieving neighbors. If you are living a life before the Lord of humility, confessing your sin regularly, seeking to honor him, knowingly walking the paths of righteousness, 
your ministry will be greatly influenced and impacted. Paul saw himself standing, by the way, in a long line of the faithful. You notice this? He talks about how his ancestors did the same thing. He, he looks back and he says, look, I, I just come in a long line of those who have faithfully followed the word of God. Sometimes when we are all alone and we feel like we're all alone and ready to give up, we need to be reminded that we're not alone. Sometimes when we face the difficulties of life, it's, it's helpful to, to kind of be able to look back at examples and say, hey, these people have done this. They've been there. They've made it through, and so can I. In my mind, when I think of someone who thought they were all alone and, and sinfully so, because a lot of times we get so tunnel-visioned, we get so self-focused, you know, we say things like, Lord, I'm the only one who's ever had to go through this. God's like, really? Really, you? You're the only one? I remember mean, you know, Elijah. I remember Elijah on Mount Carmel. You know, he's being called against the prophets of Baal in, 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 in the book of Kings. And, in, and he says this, Lord, I'm the only one left who will serve you as a prophet. God's like, really? Really? I got 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. I've set them aside for myself. Don't think that you're the only one. You're never the only one. The foundation of our faith and the encouragement of our faith is strengthened through the many examples of God-serving lives that have gone before us. That's why biographies are so important in the Christian life. So let me ask you, do you have the example of a God-serving life right now? In your home, in your church, in your family, in your workplace, do you have an example of a life that has lived to serving God, to worship Him in everything you do? Is it easily identifiable that you do not live for your own glory, but for another's? He offers to Timothy this same example of a God-serving life. Again, it's Father's Day, so uh, fathers, we're so thankful for you, and I feel the weight of this as a dad, but let me, let me ask you, are you giving this to your kids? Do your kids see a man who loves God more than anything else? Do your kids see a, a, a husband who loves his wife like Christ Jesus loved the church and gives himself for her? Do your kids see a spouse that wakes up and longs to meet with the Lord? Do your kids see a, a, a husband, a, a father, excuse me, who, who is on his knees before the Lord in prayer and communion and fellowship? Do they know that you have a deep and intimate relationship with the God and King and creator of this universe? Are they watching you make mistakes? Are they watching you fail and fall? All of us can say amen to that, right? But are they watching you, listen, quickly repent, quickly seek forgiveness, not just from them, but from the Lord? Are they watching you modeling what it means to walk faithfully before the Lord? Nothing destroys or demotivates a child's faith like hypocrisy in the home. Nothing. What a gift to pass on to your children, lay the foundation of faith and encourage their faith by giving them the gift of encouragement. Encouragement through a God-serving life. Thirdly, encouragement through a prayer-soaked life. Paul goes on to say that he does all these things as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. His gratitude to God is manifested through constant prayer for his beloved child. 
God wants to use you to encourage and to motivate others directly, but also indirectly. Like God will have you come alongside and bless and encourage by your presence and by the words you get to share, but one of the most powerful ways you can encourage the heart of those you love is simply by getting on your knees for them. Pray, pray, pray. Prayer is the indirect means of providing the support that they desperately need. And what's interesting here is that the the Pharisees, Paul, a former Pharisee, followed a regimented, scheduled life of prayer. Regular prayer times blocked out in their schedule. This would have been Paul's long-standing habit, and it's likely not abandoned, by the way, when he became a Christian. Instead, it was likely harnessed for his growing communion with the Lord Jesus Christ. He says here, he remembers him constantly in my prayers, he says. Constant doesn't mean unceasing activity, but instead it means this, repetitive activity. It was used of uh, repeatedly paying taxes, everybody's favorite thing to do. An ongoing schedule, you just know the time is coming, you gotta make payment. It was used of a bothersome cough, you know, it just kind of keeps happening, it just keeps going, it won't go away. It was used of the regular bearing of fruit, the, the normal seasons where you expected fruit to be there. You see, the idea here is that it was habitual, it was regular, it was repetitive. And we see here a series of statements, beginning with this one, statements of remembering. You know, reminiscing is not unexpected as someone nears the end of life. But let us not think it is reserved only for them. The word used here points to this mental act of consciously calling something to mind. In other words, Paul regularly, consciously, intentionally remembers Timothy. He doesn't just pray for him as he comes to mind, although I'm sure he does that as well. He has actually intentionally thought this through and planned this out. He thinks of Timothy's needs, his trials, his ministry, and all of this in a regular habit of bringing those things to the Father. Night and day can have the, the sense of, you know, kind of all the time, but I think it's probably better to understand that this, it seems to indicate that Paul had set times of prayer, which he consecrated to God. Paul had morning time prayer and nighttime prayer and probably a lot of prayer in between. But I think this concept is so, so important. You see these, these intentionally blocked out times. This is devoted to praying for my children This is devoted to praying for those that God has given me the privilege of leading spiritually in the Lord. This is devoted to praying for my grandchildren. I will block this time out and nothing will come between this time. I will be on my knees, wetting the carpet in my bedroom with tears for those that God has entrusted to me, praying for their souls, praying for their faith to be strengthened. What might God do in the lives of those you are raising up in the Lord? If we would consecrate specific times of our days to the Lord with more diligence and discipline for prayer and petitioning, the one who's in control of all things, the one who can provide and give all things. You say, well, my my children are grown already. They're out of the house, great. Then especially when your children are grown, this is a gift you can give to them. Your influence is different now. You may not have the relationship you desired. 
but you can still care for them and shape them through the regular practice of your prayers. If they're not walking with the Lord, great. You can get on your knees and you can beg the Lord of all grace, of all mercy and all peace to rescue them through the gospel of Jesus Christ. By the way, what an encouragement. I think this would have been such an encouragement to Timothy's heart to hear, to hear, Paul, Paul, you, you pray for me that often? And you're thinking of me that strategically, that intentionally? How encouraging might it be for you to go to someone today and to let them know that they are a regular part of your prayer life. You care deeply about them and you're asking the Lord to work on their behalf. What an encouragement that could be to their soul. Fourthly here, give the gift of encouragement through a love-saturated life. Prayer-soaked life for those we love. What a blessing, but a love-saturated life. This is a heart of affection. Paul says in verse 4, as I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. Paul's prayers are accompanied by this intense inner longing for Timothy. He chooses a strong word here. He longs for the day that he will see his dear son again. This longing is fed by the memory of some past event where tears were shed, and we don't know exactly when this is, but a day of departing from one another that was incredibly emotionally painful. Obviously, as we get to the end of our lives, we have some time to reflect, don't we? And I think it's common that those near the end of their lives in particular who see the the end very near in sight, they long to be around those whom they love most, and they long for those who love them most to be around them. Paul's alone, and we'll see in this letter, he's alone. He's been abandoned by virtually everybody. He's watched people, he's discipled, walk away from the faith. He's had children. He knows what it is to have children who he loves so deeply, who has poured his heart and soul into, turn their back on him and walk away from the faith. He's in this deep, dark prison. He's tired. He's ready. And as he processes his life, he thinks much about the relationships and specifically this relationship that matters so much to him. He had found Timothy, Acts chapter 16, his second time passing through Lystra, and he had adopted him as his own spiritual son. He poured himself into this young man. He knew the time he had with him was fleeting. I want you to think about this. Listen, he knew the time he had with him was fleeting. He would soon be gone. Timothy would be off to fulfill the calling of God on his own young life, and Paul longed so intensely for Timothy because he had loved him so intentionally. He had filled their time together as they traveled the roads, as they did ministry together, as they did life together. Yeah, I'm sure there were hard times where where Paul had to rebuke Timothy and address sin in his life and sin in his, his heart, but he so affectionately loved him. He shepherded his young soul. He led him in the paths of righteousness. He modeled what it meant to be a follower of Jesus Christ. He loved him so deeply. There's something so sweet about the bond of love that is developed as you pour your life into another life, isn't there? Paul knew what Timothy needed, but he knew what he needed. Paul knew that seeing Timothy would bring to him so much joy. It's been said that ministry is difficult business and often fraught with more tears than cheers. 
I think that just sounds a lot like life in general, doesn't it? Fellowship is a sweet gift that God gives, that we can give to others to encourage their faith. You know, I recently heard this statement that I think is so um, helpful in parenting and even in relationships in general. It was uh, something that was said to a young man who was getting ready to have his first child, and a good godly Christian man came beside him and said, listen, if I can give you one piece of advice when you have kids, don't worry about buying them things. Buy them experiences and moments with you. Things of this world will fade. It's what you do in the moments of this life that matter most. It's being present with them. It's developing the relationships with them. It's going out one-on-one and ministering to their souls, hearing their hearts, laughing, crying, hugging. Pour yourself into your own kids. Pour yourself into the relationships that God has given you in the body of Christ. Turn off the TV. Put down the phone. Put away the work. Time is fleeting. It is. Make sure your children, your family, your friends are experiencing a love-saturated life. Make sure you get to the end of your life and you can look back and say, I poured myself in. Not perfectly, but I poured myself in. Make sure at the end of your life, your kids will look at you and say, that, that man, that woman, they poured themselves into me. Finally, give them the encouragement of a community-shaped life. There is a rich heritage, again, that Paul draws upon. He says this in verse 5, I'm reminded of your sincere faith. A faith that dwelled first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. Paul is so thankful for the sincere, the genuine, the authentic faith of Timothy. While everybody else is abandoning the cause of Christ, here is Timothy. He's still there. He's still laboring. Yes, he's suffering. Yes, he's torn. Yes, he's wavering. Yes, he's not as strong as he should be. But he is there. And he, by the grace of God, will not be going anywhere. He's kept the faith when so many others had abandoned it. Like Paul, Timothy also had a rich heritage of those who had a sincere faith. He points back to his grandmother, Lois, and his mother, Eunice, and he reminds him, he says, remember, you, you had the privilege of growing up with, with some Jewish influence, your grandmother and your mother. His father was a Greek. But your grandmother and your mother, they loved the word of God, and they poured that into you as a young child. And when, when by God's grace, they were saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ, they poured that back into you as well. What a privilege it is to be a part of a home that knows and loves Jesus Christ. Pointing to his heritage is Paul's way of encouraging Timothy to press on. Timothy, you're part of something bigger than yourself. The baton has been passed down from generation to generation and has landed with you. Do not waffle. Do not waver. Finish strong. Timothy, grandma, and and mama, they modeled this for you. You had your faith shaped by living in, in this community, in your home. And more than likely, they brought Timothy to church with them as the ch- new churches were beginning to pop up. They were shaped, yes, by a community of faith. And while P- Timothy didn't have a father growing up, and his father, when he was alive, was a Greek, he certainly maybe had many fathers in the faith to train him in the church. This faith was in them, and he says, I'm confident that it dwells in you also. 
I, I love this. Fathers, not just you fathers, listen, mothers, how encouraging is it to see the great impact you can have on the young lives God has entrusted to you? How important we see this as a community effort. As I mentioned before, if you don't have or you've not been a part of a a Christian upbringing or home, by the grace of God, you have been warmly embraced and brought into a community of faith that has many fathers and mothers and sisters and brothers. You can have that community of faith and you can be that for many precious young lives needing to be shaped into a sincere faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to be encouraged in our faith. Paul begins here in this book, the heart of a father is a heart that both lays the foundations of faith and encourages a life of faith. A heart of God 